My name is Johnny, one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you. We are going to conclude our uh, series on prayer this morning. So if you want to jump ahead, we're going to be in Ephesians 6 is where we're going to uh, spend the most of our time. Uh, but this past week uh, has been is a big week when it comes to sports. And if you're a sports fan, if you're a baseball fan, it's, it was opening week. So any any baseball fans? A couple of you, all right. So, and then last night we had the final four, which was pretty epic. I didn't watch it, but I, had, I saw some highlights this morning. Basketball fans? All right, few of you. And even the bigger thing last night, which I found out a couple days ago, was WrestleMania was last night. I Thanks, Justin. Justin uh, loves WrestleMania, and it's funny, his son has introduced my son uh, to wrestling, and I grew up a wrestling fan. I loved uh, wrestling, and so uh, we had a small group one time where uh, at, at the end of our small group, um, you know, all the guys took their shirts off, and we just had a wrestling match after our small group, and uh, if that isn't an advertisement for small group, I don't know what is, but there's this thing with wrestling is uh, even beyond the wrestling is these things that happen outside of the wrestling time that makes it pretty entertaining. Uh, and one of those things is what I call the wrestling entrances, all right? So every wrestler has their own theme music, and they do specific things as part of their, you know, character. And uh, so I, uh, they, they jumped in here. So, like, they come in with, like, tanks. Uh, another one here is uh, somebody coming in uh, with their motorcycle. So they have these entrances, and it's just part of the drama that surrounds um, the soap opera of wrestling. And... Um, and then here's some people like just come in, you know, they have these outfits, which like, I don't think I could pull that off, outfit off, um, especially preaching. And that guy, like growing up, you know, um, you know, he goes in and he goes in the ring and then like they throw him beers and he just pours beer on his face. Like, just seems like not a great thing to do before you wrestle. But anyway, um, there's this thing about entrances. Um, this does have a point to the sermon. All right, I'm getting there. But wrestling, uh, what the, the what the message is is right. They have these entrances, and the entrances tell a lot about who they are, their person, and their agenda, right? And so, what we're talking about this morning, in the context of you know the liturgical calendar and even the historical events leading up to Easter, many of you are aware that that this Sunday is Palm Sunday, right? And so, Jesus Himself had an entrance where that he came into the city of Jerusalem in. But there's an interesting aspect of that. There was actually what, what they call like two entrances that happened uh, in the town of Jerusalem around the same time. There's a book called The Last Week by authors Borg and Crossan, uh, I think is how you pronounce his last name, where they explain the historical and biblical plausibility of two dramatic processions or entrances that happened around the same time of, of what we know as um, Palm Sunday. One of those which was the entrance of Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate. So Pontius Pilate, if you remember the character of Pontius Pilate, he is the, the ruler over that area, and he lived about 50 miles north uh, of Jerusalem. And so what was custom for that time is when there was major historical festivities or uh, holidays, that Pontius Pilate would come into these cities, into the major city of Jerusalem, to say, hey, I'm in charge here. And so one of the things is, they, they, in this book, he kind of uh, talks about the entrance that Pilate would have had when he came into Jerusalem. 
he would have came in, but most likely on a white horse, most likely coming with, uh, with an army uh, to, to just show, hey, this is the power I have. And the message was, was, was really clear was, hey, you better behave because I'm in charge here. And so this interest happens that Pilate comes into the city. He would have most likely came on the west side of town where, where Herod's palace was. The King Herod was the person in charge of the local uh, of, of his reign was in Jerusalem. And so he comes in on the west side of town. And then most likely around the same time, Jesus comes on the east side of town, coming from the Mount of Olives. He comes in, and, and this is the, what is uh, said in John. It says, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey. Uh, it's like they call it a colt. Most likely it was so young that Jesus's feet almost would touch the ground. And so Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it just as it was written in Zechariah 9.9. Says, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So there's there's these two things. Think of it like these two wrestling matches happening, both coming from opposite sides of the city. And if you know the story of Jesus leading up to his Pontius Pilate, and Jesus would come nose to nose, right? And this it represents uh, a big part of why Jesus was crucified because. There is these two kingdoms taking place, these two rules and reign coming together, and there's two wills that were happening. And it kind of embodies the reality of our world that we live in, that there are always two kingdoms at play, right? There's the kingdom of God, and, and Jesus taught his disciples for, and even for us as followers of Jesus, to pray that this kingdom uh, in heaven would come on earth. But there's another kingdom that wants to keep uh, another kingdom, another will that wants to, to take rule and reign over us in our world. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, this world, this kingdom is enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in the skies, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And so these are the, this is what Jesus is teaching us, that what we are in right now is a war of two wills, a war of two kingdoms. And so part of this idea as we end uh, uh, our series here is we are to pray like we're in a war. We are to pray like we are in a war because there are two wills and two agendas that are happening. John 10.10 10 says it this way, a thief comes only to, to steal kill and destroy, but I have come so that they might, may have life and have it abundantly. In James, we, we see these words to resist the devil. In, in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, your adversary, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Him, devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. That word resist means to forcefully declare one's convictions holding one's ground in the face of opposition. Part of this is Jesus taught his disciples to pray like you're in a war. What we're going to talk about this morning is what we call, we refer to as contending prayer. Contending prayer is, even that word was used uh, in a wrestling match, in an intense effort in a wrestling match to, to gain one's ground. It's, it's striving against a rivalry 
or contending with an enemy for the control over something. And so we're going to talk about it. Just think about your life for just a minute. Just where we're at, right? There's a war that's happening both in your life and the life around us. And there, you could probably feel that somewhat. If you're attuned to it, I think our world was trying to diminish that, that the devil, that's just like a character, you know, we, you know, in high school, I, I dressed up like the devil um, in a Mr. Fairford Union, you know, skit. And it's to kind of play this idea that he he's kind of uh, this this character who doesn't really have any power. And so we kind of just dismiss the devil. And on one extreme, we can we can make the devil a part of everything. But here's the deal: there there's a contention in your life, and it and it's life and it's death. There are two wills or two visions for your life. One is for life. One is for death. And how do we pray in such a way that we experience more life, both in our lives and the world around us? And so we're going to jump to, to Ephesians 6 to kind of to talk about how do we pray like we're in, we're in a war or have contending prayer. So in Ephesians 6, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is an early church leader. He's helping churches just navigate the tension and the, 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 these two kingdoms coming at each other. And so um, in, the, in the specific case of this church in the town of Ephesus, right, even after Pilate and Jesus, there's, there's contention over the gospel. And so the same words that Jesus wants to speak to Ephesus, he wants to speak to us. So we're going to be in verse 10. So if you want to follow along, I'll have it on the screen here. But he says this. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So I'm going to pause right there. Paul kind of outlines this that, that, and kind of gets, gets us present to this fact that we're in this struggle. And, and it's not a struggle between two humans or physical flesh. It's not, it's not humans against humans. It's, again, uh, it's not flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers of darkness, against evil. This is what we're at war against. And what uh, Eugene uh, Peterson, he paraf- paraphrased it this way. This is no week in war that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. And so again, this isn't a war against, between humans, against flesh and blood. But what I'm going to argue is this is a war over hearts. Not the fleshly heart, but over our hearts, ours and theirs. It's a contending and a struggle over one control of one's heart. I'm going to define the heart this way. It's our allegiances, our affections, our worship, the things that we put our trust in. This is what is at war, that, that the enemy wants to take control over. And so Satan and his plan is to implant or infiltrate our hearts through our minds. The way he gets entrance into our hearts is through lies. That is his basic definition or basic strategy is, is to come at us with lies. Stanley uh, Haberwas says it this way, the powers never appear as evil or or coercive. 
the powers always masquerade as freedoms that we have been graciously given or as necessities that we cannot live without. So he doesn't come at us like, hey, you know, in extreme examples to go do this sort of evil. It, he usually entices us in such a way that it's saying, hey, you deserve this kind of freedom. You deserve this kind of thing. And it seems like a, it usually takes something that's really good and then makes it the ultimate thing. John Mark Comer says this in his, in his book, Live No Lies. He says, the devil's goal is to first isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires, which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. Specifically, he lies about who God is, who we are, and what the good life is, with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. His intent is to get us to seize autonomy from God and redefine good and evil for ourselves, thereby leading to the ruin of our souls and society. So you guys get this idea that, that, that Satan, that, that word really means de de deceiver or accuser. And so he comes at us with lies, both about us about God, or about what the good life God has for us with him. And so there's this thing that, that we're going to read through this equipment that God gives us, because these are to combat both our minds and to guard our hearts and minds. And so you see this emphasis that, that this is the way that the enemy tries to instill in us these lies that eventually lead to our ruin, our death, and then it leads to barrenness in our life starts out with this vast freedom. Hey, walk in this. And you start stepping into it, and it's like a funnel where it leads to, to suffocation, to death. I mean, to think about addiction, right? Any type of addiction that you think of. It first starts out with an a, appeal to that desire. Hey, you are stressed. Why don't you just take this? Starts there, right? And it keeps going on and going on, and then boom, right? You, you've now become enslaved to that thing because... You need this thing in order to live and to survive. And then you just can't get out of it. This is what slavery or sin leads to. It, it's a suffocation. It starts with something that is good or maybe not even wrong, but then it becomes this thing we need in order to live and to, to live. And then eventually what that does is that moves us away from living in the freedom that God has for us. And so Paul's emphasis is here is, He's saying that you, in a war, in a, a wrestling match, the, the point of this is you got to stand firm. you got to stand your ground, as he says. There's this emphasis about standing firm against these schemes of the devil, of, of his fiery darts that we're going to read about in a little bit. And so we need to stand firm. We see this aspect that in order to stand firm, we need two things. We need strength and we need equipment. You guys, you guys with me? Strength. Equipment. This is what he's going to show us. So we see there first with strength. Strength, he says, be strengthened by his vast strength. So if you were with us here last week, uh, Phil did a great job on talking about how do we pray in this middle voice of praying, not in an active, not in a passive, but a middle voice. And so I can't cover everything that Phil covered. He re-recorded it because we had some difficult, uh, technical difficulties. But if you want a, a full uh, teaching on what this middle voice means, uh, it's, it's helpful because the way that, that Paul writes this is this verb to be strengthened by what? 
his vast strength. So an active command would be, hey, go and get strong, you know, buy some protein shakes, um, go to CrossFit, get like me, right? Get ripped, um, become a bodybuilder, get six-pack abs, go get strength and have it for yourself. Passive would say, right, even in this, it's like you would think it would be like, well, just God's going to just zonk you and it's going to be his strength, right? You don't have to do anything. It's all about God. But what does he say? Be strengthened. There's a responsibility that we have a part to play where his strength is imparted to us by participating and taking responsibility to draw from the strength that God provides. You guys get the picture that we have this responsibility to play. Now, this is how we, we live a life out of his strength. It comes from union and being with him in, in a prayer life. So we need this strength because the Bible is very clear. We did a whole series on resilience. We're talking a little bit about it more in Good Friday service because this war, this conflict is fierce and long. And so we need strength, but also we need equipment. So here we are in verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God. Verse 13, it says, take up the full armor of God so that you may, able to, may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like an armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness of the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He goes on to say, pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Let's stop there. So one, we need what? Strength comes from praying in this middle voice, being with God. It's his strength, but it's also, we need equipment. And even this, this is part of the middle voice. This is the equipment that God provides. We can't make this equipment on our own. Take up whose armor? It's God's armor. He lists some different, uh, he goes through the full complete armor that a Roman soldier would have had. And so we have a responsibility to play to take up this equipment, each piece. So what does this have to do with prayer and hearts and war? There's a unique thing in that word, pray at all times, that I want you to understand a little bit. That, that Greek has a, what it calls a participle, which means it's praying, which, which what scholars would say um, that this is be taken with all the foregoing commands in the beginning. So it's almost as Paul is saying, with each piece of armor you put on with prayer. So you pray to put on the belt of truth. You pray in such a way to put on the helmet of salvation. You pray in such a way to put the breastplate of righteousness. You pray in such a way that you have the sword of the spirit, that you pray in such a way that you are, have the sandals to, to proclaim the gospel. You pray in such a way that you have the, feel, the shield of prayer. It all involves prayer. And so it's, again, it's this co-contending with God. See, this is what prayer is all about in this war, how you pray in the midst of war, how you pray contending prayer. It's by prayer that we gain the strength and put on the equipment he gives 
us in order to co-contend with God over our hearts, ours, and theirs. Are you guys following along? I know this is kind of a lot, but it's this idea, right? The way we get strength, the way we get this equipment is with God. We can't, we can't have the strength nor the equipment without God. So we are praying and doing this with God. We are co-contending with God of all the enemy's attacks on us. Not about you, um, but if you if you played any sports or anything, like some of you kind of like this, but the majority of people just don't like playing defense. Does that make sense? You want to get in on the action. And he, can I can I just have a real quick moment? I've had a couple conversations with some people, nobody in, in this room, but just some different things. And and so often, the conversation if we if it goes into you know they find out I'm a pastor or something and. And, and, and some of these, these are believers that, and they're just like, oh, you know, I oh, mean, our world is just going to crap. Jesus is coming back soon. Aren't you just so uh, just concerned and fearful, just all the things in our world? And I get it. I get it. There are some things that are hard to navigate, if, especially for our older generation. You, you've seen the decline from different things, whether it's prayer in schools or different things like, I get it. But I think we've we've gotten so um, scared that we've just played defense. You guys know what I'm saying? That God has given us this both this strength and this equipment to not just to come back into our little cuddy and just try to protect ourselves. That God has given us this equipment to advance, to take territory that the enemy has taken. That this, I would believe, one of the greatest opportunity the church has, ha- has to really shine what the gospel is really all about. It's not just a cultural thing. It's like an opportunity to say, if I follow Jesus, I'm giving my life to his kingdom and to his rule and reign. In the midst of the evil and darkness we are facing as a culture, it is an opportunity to kick the darkness until light starts coming out. You guys follow me? I know I'm getting a little excited. But I like playing offense, not just defense. You guys, so, so if you look at this equipment, the strength and equipment, I want you to read this, is not just for playing defense. It is to play offense, to take territory, as C.S. Lewis said. He says he's given us feet, sandals, ready for the readiness of the gospel of peace. We are messengers of good news to go forward with the gospel. And have a readiness at any moment to take out the good news, both in proclamation and in demonstration. And then verse 19 to 20 says this, look at Paul. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. So there is this contending prayer, this co-contending prayer that we do with God for protection for our hearts to, to, to battle the, the fiery uh, darts of the enemy, to protect our, ourselves from lies. But there's also this co-contending prayer that we do for advancement, for new life to come forth from, from death and barrenness. It's what I call co-contending or contendering or laboring prayer for the lost for the gospel to spread. If you love using the word revival, it's for revival. It's the kind of prayer that gives birth to new life where there is death. Amen. All right, we're good. And we want to see that kingdom break in 
not just the kingdom of darkness and of lies. So what does that look like? I'm going to share a story and then uh, I got to get into some application because this is a little bit of longer teaching. So I'm going to look at another battle between two kingdoms. And if this one's in the, in the Old Testament, it, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you want to go there, I'm going to kind of paraphrase the beginning part just for lack of time. And then we're going to read uh, the end of it. So right now there's this, this guy named Elijah. And Elijah is, is a prophet of the day. And what, what's happening is, is the whole nation of Israel has, has gone astray and have worshipped other gods. They've worshipped this false god called Baal. And so, and so Elijah call, calls out both the king and all the prophets and says, let's have a showdown. I mean, this is like WWE type wrestling showdown. Let's take it to the ring, right? Let's show up. Let's like, you know, you know, it's like we're going to the alley and we're going to find out who is in charge here. And so Elijah, he, he says, you, you get all your prophets. We're going we're gonna to set up two sacrifices. We're going to put two bowls and we're going to say, who is the real God? Who should we really follow? And so they get all prepared and, and, the, and the prophets of Baal, there's like 450 of them. They are around this altar and they, they are praying to their gods, but for their gods, this gods of Baal to show up for, for them to light the fire on this, on this altar, to burn up the sacrifice. And so they're praying and they're praying and Elijah, you know, every good wrestling match has some trash talk, right? And so Elijah's like, you know, maybe your maybe your gods are just going to the bathroom, all right? Maybe they're they're stuck there, all right? Um, they're having some constipation, anyway. And so he's trash talking with them a little bit, right? And he, it says it goes on, and these bales, these these prophets, they start cutting themselves, they start mutilating themselves. They are so entrapped in the lies that they feel like if they cut themselves, if they if they hurt themselves, they'll get these gods' attention. And then Elijah, he goes, okay, that's nice. Now it's my turn. And he goes, I want you to do is we're just going to douse this thing with water. And there's two things to this. One, to really show up like this is God who's going to overcome these things. But the reality is, two, they're three and a half years into a drought. And so water is like the costliest thing that Elijah could have put on this altar. It was his offer of sacrifice. I'm going to give the most valuable thing right now is water. Um, and we're going to just douse this thing. We're going to put a trench around it and make a, a, you know, a moat to, to put this on. And then Elijah just says this in 1 Kings 18, verses 37 to 39. He says, answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their what? Hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And that would be a great way to end the story, wouldn't it? Man, God's showing up. These people, 450 prophets who who have been so led astray in darkness and lies, they come to this point of worship for God. And there's some things that, you know, you have to wrestle with in the, in the first verses because that part of that ideal was to, to kill and destroy those, those, those leaders who went astray. But then Elijah continues in verse 41. We're going to read this part. It said, Elijah then said to the king, to King Ahab, 
Go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of a rainstorm. Remember, it's three and a half years of no rain and no drought and no life, right? This is what the enemy does, right? It's, it's to, to capture with them lies, and then it brings about a barrenness, a desert. And so it says, so Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel, and he bent down on the ground, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea, So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. And on the seventh time, he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. And a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and they went to Jezreel, Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah, and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So what, what's with this story? So God shows up in this miraculous way. Fire falls down from heaven. And then there's this story of Elijah praying for rain right afterwards. Tyler sat in his book, the book I've kind of recommended during the series, um, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. He uses this story that I just told you to highlight that God doesn't just dream of the church on fire, but God dreams of the city reborn. See, a church on fire is the vehicle that gets us moving towards God's true longing, which is a city reborn. God's dream isn't that the church will improve its programs, grow in number, or grow in number, add another worship service, or host an influential conference. All of that's fine. It's just not what God dreams about. God dreams about pouring his spirit out on the whole city. James 5 says this when he's talking about James, which referred to this Elijah praying. He says, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly, fervently is another way you could translate it, that it would not rain, and it ran for three years and six months. It did not rain on the land. Then it says, he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. It produced life. See, this part of co-contending or co-laboring with God is this prayer that his spirit would be poured out on, on his city, on people who don't know Jesus, that people would encounter who he is through us, the church on fire for him. And so how do we do that? Are we contending for that? Are we willing to fight for that? Are we willing to get out of our defensive positions to put on the 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 offensive equipment, because God is inviting us to co-contend with him, not with swords, not with military gear, but with prayer, to contend and pray for the lost, to pray for our city. And so to wrap up this series on prayer, we're, we're ending again with this heart. Um, we've we've kind of uh, had this, this series tag, sorry, of, of having a heart for prayer. We're kind of ending with having a heart for our city, having a heart for those who don't know Jesus, for our city to be born, for the spirit to be poured out in our city. And one of the ways we can do that is praying for the lost, praying for people who don't know Jesus, for new life to come into their hearts, for lies to be exposed, for light to come into darkness. 
There's a story if you're familiar with D.L. Moody. Uh, he was a he was a pastor. He was an evangelist. Evangelist. He had a fifth grade education and was a shoe salesman. Uh, but he had one strategy in his evangelism, and that was prayer. He's famously known. He carried a hundred friends who had no relationship with Jesus. He would carry this list of a hundred people with him, and he would pray for them for years and years and years, just to to in as far as just intercessory prayer, praying that his friends would encounter Jesus, that that God would reveal himself to each one of them in a way. When he died, 96 of the 100 uh, had become answered prayers. At, At Moody's funeral, the four remaining friends were independently so moved by the memorial service that they all came to faith at his funeral. How crazy is that? And that, like, that was it. He... He had a hundred friends that he would contend for and he would pray for over and over again. And that's like a pretty good rate, you know, like a hundred people. Here's, here's what I'm challenging. Can we do that with three? Can we do that with three people? Do we have three people in our lives that we can contend for and pray for on an ongoing basis? And so that's why you have a prayer card that says contending in prayer for the lost. And there's three people. And so what I want you to do, two things, uh, one's for you and then one's for the prayer wall, because we want to do this as a church, is we want to pray for these three people with you, not alone. And so the first step, what I want you to do is to do this with God. We're going we're gonna to pray this way in a middle voice prayer, because here's the thing, uh, praying for the lost is very slow and unglamorous. It's slow. It's very easy to quit. It's very easy to think like it doesn't matter. Nothing's happening. But like, that's why we need this like rebellious, rebellious fidelity in this to keep doing it, to keep doing it, to keep doing it. And so that's why we're going to try to do it all together. So one, we're doing the middle voice. So first, we're just going to ask God, who are the three people you want me to pray for? We're going to ask God. And if you get some people, we're going to start with there. And if you don't, then just think of the three people that come to mind. And then I think it's helpful to take these three people and pray with our, we have a prayer model. We have a five-step prayer model. So part of this is first, if you want to think through this, I'm going to put this on the screen. You may want to take a picture of this or reference it later. But to first go to diagnose, diagnosis. Diagnose what the enemy is trying to do in their life. What is Satan's plan for their life? Can you see it being played out in their life? What lies are they believing in? Do they have more of a hunger for, for money that they're living their life, just pursuit of accumulation of things and possessions? Maybe that's the enemy's plan to get them to believe in that, to live a life for that and not for God. Maybe it's, it's the way that maybe some of these, these have been hurt by the church or been hurt by certain people. Maybe the enemy has, has tried to say the lie, right? That right. Christianity um, is this of, if it's just a bunch of hypocrites. And so, Whatever, that's a lie that they're living into. Maybe it's just science. Maybe it's just like this idea they they believe in in this sort of thing. Whatever it is, just just asking God, what get a a revelation of what the enemy's plan is for their life. Then the next is the prognosis. What is God wanting to do in their life? What is God doing in their life to try and woo them, to pursue them? What does God have for them in their life? I just heard a story from uh, the guy who goes to church. He called me the other day. He got to lead somebody to the Lord uh, a few days ago in, in, a, in a hotel, like little bar area. 
And one of his start started with him saying, like asking, what's 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 God's or what's your plan for your life? What are you living for? And he reluctantly shared that. And then he asked him this question, well, what do you think God's plan and purpose is for your life? And he just, that led into a conversation and led to him saying yes to Jesus. And, and so that's what we get to do when in prayer is we're asking, God, what do you want to do in their life? What do you want to speak into their life? And then the last part, the third part is prescription. It means, God, what part do I have to play? So if we just, it's a, we're just going to continue to pray for the loss. And part of that prescription may be, maybe they're ready for Alpha. Maybe they can need just a safe place to ask questions. Maybe they, they, they need invited to church, but the reality, maybe some of them aren't ready for church. And so your job is just to love them, to form relationships, to invite them over for dinner, whatever it is, but you're doing that with God. And so let's just think, like, we just pray for, if there's, think around here, if there's three people times how many people? Now, I would take 5% of that, right? of just seeing 5% of those people come into Jesus. But we're going to contend and we're going to labor that new life would happen in their hearts. I don't have time for my last story. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to, we're going to end with some worship. I'm going to share this one last quote. It's from a guy named Dr. Orr. He says, whenever God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them to praying. And I just want that, uh, my hope and throughout all of this is that it has and in some ways inspired us to have a heart for prayer. That the realization that we should come to is that the things we are facing in this world, the things that we're facing in our life, in our friend's life, our family's life, the, city, the lives of those who live in our city, it can't be faced with strategy or activities or programs. Like we need God to show up. We need God to be a part of that. But here's the cool thing is he's inviting us to participate in. So we started with prayers about talking to God and being with God and hearing from God. A part of prayer and having a heart for prayer is participating in with God, that his prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we get to participate with God doing that here and now. Would you stand and let us worship together?